Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> Yeah, so I think, you know, the I think there are probably more, but the three that I focus on in this book, the main idols of Christian nationalism are power, fear, and violence. And I think those are the yeah, those are the idols that Christian nationalism um tempts Americans towards. So this understanding of power, being able to get what you want despite resistance. And who doesn't want that? And that becomes incredibly um you know, tempting when you are afraid, when you have a sense of threat that something's going to be taken away from you, especially power or control. And when that happens, when we're afraid, when there's threat, we tend to draw boundary lines of who we are, who they are, who we should be afraid of. And when that takes place and we're afraid and we want to maintain control and power, um, that's when we're most likely to move towards violence to defend our access to power. Hey, welcome back, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright, and I'm joined by your faithful host, Pastor Josh Bertram. How's it going, Josh? Doing well, Will. Thank you. Hey, and today we are thrilled to have Dr. Andrew Whitehead with us. He um, He's not just a top-tier sociologist, but he's also an author of two amazing books, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, and his latest work, American Idolatry. How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church, which critically examines how idol worship infiltrates American culture and influences mm. our democratic ideals. So thank you so much, um, Professor, for being here with us. Yeah, thanks so much for the invite. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. Absolutely. You know, that's like a your the title of your book is amazing. I want to do a like sermon series <laughs> off of it called American Idolatry. You just given me my next sermon series. So thank you. That sounds great. I mean, just have everybody buy it and then you do the sermon series and we're good to go. They have to buy it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Buy a copy for each person in their household. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Including kids and pets. Um Okay, so so I, I, I want to address kind of the the number one question I had when I was reading your book. Um, and that is, what does what does Waco, Texas, Christian nationalism and shiplap all have in common? I guess they all have in common that maybe me, right? I spent time in Waco. <laughs> I know what shiplap is, although I don't think we have any in our house, um, and then studying Christian nationalism. But, you know, that line in the book was probably one of my favorites uh, that I got in there. So I really appreciate you bringing it up. <laughs> yeah. So, That's so, so good. So, so get, get, give, give, give us just, just for those that haven't read the book yet, which yeah. um, would be a tragedy, like give us kind of just, <laughs> just, just the backdrop of, of like the, the scene that you, mm. you sort of described um, wherein shiplap was actually mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, this book really is kind of the culmination of of two journeys, right, that I've been on. So one is the professional. So as a sociologist studying American religion and just interested in trying to explain why Americans do what they do, see, you know, what they see in their social worlds, how they believe and act within them, I'm trying to find explanations for that and how religion can be so important to that, but then also how American culture really 
really does influence religion. Um, and so I did my grad work uh, at Baylor. Um, but again, this was before the um, fixer upper uh, kingdom kind of came into existence. Mm -hmm. uh, we left before that happened. But um, then the other you mean journey, white woman's heaven. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, is this heaven or white woman's Instagram? Do you remember that song? Have you heard it? <laughs> no, I haven't heard it. But now, <laughs> yeah, the whole the whole town is is really just changed from when we were there. Like it was very different. Um, but yeah, then the other journey that I've been on is just as a Christian myself, trying to understand this intersection between you know who I am uh, and and what I believe as a Christian, but then also what being an American citizen you know demands. And growing up, not really questioning that um, and seeing both as seamlessly intertwined. Um, but then, you know, through this journey, seeing those times where my personal faith might mean that I need to, you know, set aside aspects of what, you know, America is calling, you know, from me. Or, you know, are there aspects of being a, a quote unquote good citizen that butt up against being a faithful Christian? And so that part of my personal faith journey, plus the professional part of studying Christian nationalism, you know, kind of culminate in this book just to really explore um, and try and lay out, you know, this, these findings that, that I continue to, um, you know, uncover with colleagues around Christian nationalism, seeing them more and more as opposed to what I was taught growing up and then obviously embrace now is being a faithful Christian and, and loving God and loving my neighbor. You have two super loaded words in your title, and I'm not sure if you were the one who came up with the title or if the title was imposed upon you. You don't have to answer that <laughs> at this point, but we have two. I mean, you can, but we have two yeah. very loaded words, American and idolatry. I didn't know that you could be an idolatrous American. I'm saying that kind of tongue in cheek, of course. What does it mean <laughs> that like what 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 are these loaded words and how do they come together in your book to create a premise that's compelling for us? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. I think, you know, if you like the title, I came up with it. If you don't like it that much, it was imposed upon me. Um, but you know, I think really what what I tried to point out um, and what I hope with this title brings to mind um, is really does intertwine um, how, you know, closely connected uh, the Christian faith and symbols of the Christian faith and these different beliefs are and have been to these different aspects of being an American citizen. Um, and and when we start to see, you know, how closely those have been intertwined, then we start to hopefully look into the history behind it. Why has it been like that? Or perhaps why shouldn't it be? Or what, what was, what were detrimental aspects of that closely intertwining those two? Um, and so then I think hopefully that lays the groundwork to start this journey and start asking these questions. So, you know, as we think of idolatry, you know, in, uh, the Christian tradition, this idea that, you know, idols tempt us to put our faith in them um, because they may offer us protection or provision, right? But then they require allegiance. We have to, you know, as we look at the story of God's people or, or really in any religion, if we're talking about idolatry or idol worship, we have to swear allegiance to them. And then that's going to cost us something. And so thinking deeply about what we're swearing allegiance to and what it's asking from us and what is it going to cost us? 
Um, because then throughout the book, I, you know, try to highlight that when Christians, you know, buy into and swear allegiance to this, um, you know, this, this marrying of the faith with power, um, a certain type of political power, um, through, you know, because they're scared of losing something through fear and threat. And then basically saying, you know, we will, um, give our allegiance to this if it provides, it provides us protection. Um, what does that do to us? Right. And, and so in the Christian tradition, this idea of idol worship, that it distorts our theological imaginations. Um, it distorts our knowledge of God and it distorts how we view our neighbors. Um, and I think, and I try to make this point then that that leads us to betray the gospel, um, and betray our loyalty, ultimate loyalty to Jesus. Um, and so that's where I think these two words, you know, play a central role in trying to lay out this foundation of, of where we're going and, and how we got here. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Yeah, I'm curious if you can um, maybe elaborate on the definition of American and, and, and it, I'm, I'm only asking because, because of this, because Mm. if you, if you came in, you know, you saw your book on the shelf, knew nothing about you or Christian nationalism or anything. Mm. And you saw the, the subtitle, how Christian nationalism betrays the gospel threatens the church. One person would think American applies to like Christian nationalists. But like, based on everything you just said, you know, like, like if, if your subtitle was how Christians betray the gospel and threaten the church, the version of American seems to, to, to broaden quite a bit. So, so like, I, I'm curious if maybe you can, like, how you define American or, or what, what does the body of, of work inside the book sort of point to what an American is? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, in thinking about, um, American, really what I'm, what our work shows and what I'm trying to highlight there is that, you know, as we're thinking about religious nationalism, it isn't anything that is unique to Christianity, let's say, even as a world religion. Um, other world religions, um, large religions, if they're usually a majority religion in an area, they're going to be susceptible to being kind of taken up, co-opted, used politically to to ensure and kind of buttress power. And so it isn't anything about Christianity that's, you know, new at that. But then also there isn't anything unique about America um, that it, you know, buys in or kind of perpetuates religious nationalism. Other countries do this as well. And Christianity has been used in other countries throughout history, you know, in this way with with religious nationalism. And so really this idea of uh, American idolatry, um, just kind of highlighting the focus that 
you know, I'm looking at particular, a particular country, a particular religion, generally in a particular time and place. While, you know, I have to bring in a lot of history to explain where we are now, I think in this moment, that's what I'm focusing on. And so really this idea of defining American, um, you know, I think social science and, and I'm, um, you know, I obviously am in full agreement with this is that there are a variety of definitions of American and it depends on what community you're a part of and what boundary lines you're drawing. And so if we're talking to Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism, they're going to have a very particular definition of American that falls along whether you were born here or not, what color your skin is, um, you know, even, you know, going so far as how you identify um, in different, you know, social spheres. Um, if we're talking to a group of Americans that reject Christian nationalism, that definition is going to look different to them too. And so, um, these groups are constantly, you know, hopefully, I mean, we're all a part of this discussion of what American, what American is, what America means, um, how we envision it. And so I think, yeah, in that sense, I don't have a clear, I, I mean, I personally have an idea about how we should define American, but mm -hmm. those are contested. Um, and Christian nationalism is a part of that um, contested space, for sure. Absolutely. I definitely agree with what you're saying. When I'm thinking about idolatry and someone gets the word idolatry, someone says it, if they even have any concept of what that is, which probably more and more people don't, Hmm. except for like American Idol. But does that really tell us about what idolatry <laughs> really is, right? So idolatry, this idea of they would take this wood or stone and they would create a representation, visual representation of their God that they could speak to and hmm. this idea that this God inhabited this thing in some way. And so they could, they could gain something mm -hmm. from speaking to this material object that had, was endued with some kind of spiritual force. What do you see as the connection between the idolatry you're talking about and the idolatry of, say, you know, the Bible, when it's talking about, you know, the different gods that they're worshiping and the graven images and all that stuff? Help us make that connection to idolatry, because someone could say, hey, dude, I'm not worshiping any... <laughs> statues. Right, right, and yeah. I know that's a simplified, simplistic thing, but we can think that. Like it's hard for us as Americans to make that connection. Yeah. No, that's a really good question, really good point. And I think that too, I think as you're kind of asking the question, I think kind of what you're getting at as well is if we limit our understanding of idolatry or idols to only these little, you know, wooden or gold yeah. graven yeah. images, we're going to miss the broader point of the story of, you know, God interacting with with humanity in that an idol is anything that we're placing our faith in, trust in, hope in other than God, right? So in ancient Near East cultures that might have taken the um might have manifested itself as, you know, these little graven images or whatever else. But if we're looking today in our context, um, we're going to have idols. It may not manifest like that, but they are going to, um, there are things that we're going to place our hope, trust, allegiance, pledge our allegiance to, um, these things that are telling us a different story than perhaps what God is interested, um, in inviting us into. Um, and so I think that's where for me, um, to say that, 
you know, just because it's not that I'm saying Americans are, you know, worshiping these little graven images or whatever, but that American Christians, um, their, their hearts can be turned, right, to put their faith, hope, and trust in something other than what God is interested in doing or what Jesus came to do and commanded us to do likewise. And so, you know, whether idolatry is in ourselves, our ability to you know, manifest success in the world or our physical health or beauty, or whether it's money and, and capitalism or uh, the political process, a political party or a political leader, um, or even the use of faith to gain control over others. I think all of these can be idols that tempt Americans um, and that, you know, have been tempting to me on my journey. And so just trying to make sense sure. of that. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what specifically about Christian nationalism is idolatrous? Idolatry is taking something, making it ultimate. How is Christian nationalism idolatrous? Yeah, so I think, you know, the... I think there are probably more, but the three that I focus on in this book, the main idols of Christian nationalism are power, fear, and violence. And I think those Ooh. are the, yeah, those are the idols that Christian nationalism um, tempts Americans towards. So this understanding of power, being able to get what you want despite resistance, and who doesn't want that? And that becomes incredibly, yeah. um, you know, tempting when you are afraid, when you have a sense of threat that something's going to be taken away from you, especially power or control. And when that happens, when we're afraid, when there's threat, we tend to draw boundary lines of who we are, who they are, who we should be afraid of. And when that takes place and we're afraid and we want to maintain control and power, um, that's when we're most likely um, to move towards violence, to defend our access to power. And so those three main idols of Christian nationalism, I think that's what has been tempting to American Christians and, and, you know, even before the U S was founded, you know, white, uh, European Christians in this country and how they acted towards others and what they saw their role as and their relationship with, with the Christian God. So I think the main idols of, of Christian nationalism are power, fear, and violence. I'm, I'm curious, is this a book you think you would have written if Trump never ran for president? Oh, that is such a good question. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would have written it by now, I guess. Right. So just to like give a backdrop our the first book I wrote with Sam Perry, taking America back for God, we started writing these peer reviewed articles about Christian nationalism and linking it to a number of different um, attitudes and beliefs uh, like a decade ago, it was like 2013. And so we were doing that and we were seeing that it was really an important predictor of all these attitudes, even above and beyond how someone voted or above and beyond um, their personal religiosity across a host of issues. And so as we started to publish these papers, you know, I, I think I kind of had the idea first, try to get some data collected. And then it was like, well, you know, Sam, we should write this. So we um, are like, all right, let's put it all together in a book and make it accessible. Let's not just have it be in peer reviewed journals. And so we were going to do that. Um, but our research around this topic, I think, benefited in some ways from the, you know, him making into office because now all of a sudden mm. it was a very, 
you know, powerful person um, in a very powerful political position that was willing to really talk in these terms and use Christian nationalist rhetoric. Not that other Republican presidents hadn't, but Trump was of a different type. I think everybody can kind of um, understand that and accept that, right? Like he would talk about Christianity and and bringing America back and, and giving them power while personally not making really any, you know, um, attempts to look Christian or be, you know, Christian, you know, even George Bush or others would, would talk about their personal faith. He really didn't want to. And so it really showed the power of this rhetoric. Um, so when that happened, I think it took some of our research. It, we just kind of were happy. We were studying this, you know, cultural phenomenon at a time when it just kind of peaked. And so I think some of what's happened since then has, you know, made our, our first book kind of get pushed out there into a broader uh, a public. And then for me, this book just kind of is that next step where, you know, I can point to like the two paragraphs in Taking America Back for God, where the seed of this book was kind of planted, where it, this is a different type of writing, right? I'm bringing my personal story. I'm moving beyond, you know, as a social scientist, I'm making normative claims and, you know, doing all of that, mm. which is different, but trying to speak to fellow Christians and say, listen, I'm on this journey. We're on this journey. Let's, you know, really think through what's been happening, where we're going, um, because I think social science is showing us that um, what this desire for a Christian nation is associated with really turns us away from what Jesus came to do and and commanded us to do. Um, And so, yeah, I, I love the question. And that is my long and rambling answer, but I don't know. I think it probably would have taken some more time, but it really did. It really came came to the fore, I think, with with that uh, administration for for a lot of folks, but especially for, you know, Protestant Christian white folks like me. Um, it really came to the fore quickly. Yeah. You know, and, and just to kind of stay on that vein, um, I mean, I don't know how many people we've spoken to just about Christian nationalism and and uh, ostensibly, like no matter how long our conversations go, Trump's name pops up <laughs> right um, and uh i mean i should i should allow it to pop up more because our episodes about trump actually do much better than like our episodes where we don't talk about <laughs> any trump. news is good news brother <laughs> oh man so yeah so like I, i'm curious like what's what's the tie-in then i mean it's like you know we look at january 6th we see people christian flags we're like okay that's a mm-hmm. christian nationalist you know we look at certain policies or decisions from the supreme court we're like oh that's that's christian nationalism you know but mm-hmm. then you got trump like so how does trump tie into christian nationalism you know and christian nationalist yeah definitely no i think um what we find over and over in in the research and when we define Christian nationalism, it's this desire for a particular expression of Christianity to be privileged in the public sphere. And I say particular expression because, as we know, there are a lot of different expressions of Christianity in the U.S., um, but this one particular one is uh, quite conservative, both politically and religiously, but it brings with it, you know, beyond kind of adhering to historical and orthodox beliefs of the Christian faith, like who Jesus was, what Jesus came to do and did, and all of those things. It brings with it all this cultural baggage. And again, I'm not saying that other expressions of Christianity 
don't bring cultural baggage with them, but we're focused on this one particular one because it's been quite powerful um, throughout American history. But it brings with it this cultural baggage that um, links it to a number of different elements. And so one is a really strong uh, moral traditionalism that wants to create a society that's hierarchical. There are certain people at the top that should enjoy broad access to all the benefits of society with everyone else coming after. Um, there's also a comfort with authoritarian social control. So it sees the world as a chaotic and, um, yeah, a chaotic space. And sometimes we need strong rules and rulers to come in and enact that order. Right. And so that it follows who's at the top and, and on. And then there's another element of a desire for strict ethno-racial boundaries around who gets to identify as an American or a true American, right? Who is like the, um, you know, as a psychology undergrad, right? What What is that perfect type, right? As people imagine it, what does it look like? Um, and again, those strict boundaries around national identity fall on ethno-racial lines. And then also there's a populist impulse to Christian nationalism where we should be distrustful of quote-unquote elites like academics or religious leaders or whoever else. Um, and so all of these elements um, really do uh, overlap with a lot of what Trump brought to the table. Um, but really we have to see Trump not as this person that just like capitalized on something that was there, but he really is the end point of a long movement. Um, especially after the 1960s and the social unrest with the rise of the religious right and a desire for getting the right people in positions of power, as they would say, um, to be able to bring this nation back to God and to adhere to God's principles. And so over time, as that went on, we finally got to the point where um, for Americans that embrace Christian nationalism, they were willing to set aside any personal failings of that politician as long as this person was speaking their language and would say, I will give you access to political, cultural power. I will return you to where you had hoped to be. And Trump did that. And he, for whatever else he brings to the table, right, um, he is skilled in those rallies of sensing what connects and not. Right. He can feel that and he goes with it. Um, he's yeah, that type of marketing, he's got a feel for it. And, you know, he started it early on and then, you know, through his administration, it became second nature to him where he really could lean into this rhetoric and use it as a political tool um, to motivate people, to bring them in um, and constantly, you know, promise them, hey, I will deliver for you. And they believed it and um, they changed Folks that, you know, threw their support behind them wholeheartedly, they changed their view on whether politicians should be moral leaders, right? They were like, no, it doesn't matter. Like, all that matters is if they're going to get the job done, um, both in quotes and in survey data. So I think that is the strong connection. Um, some of those elements of Christian nationalism really intertwine with the type of leadership that he brought. But that was part of a tradition that had been, you know, happening within American politics for decades before him. Yeah. Give us a sense of what that tradition was. Like for me, hmm. when January 6th happened, that's when it was almost like, oh man, there is this, like, we need to figure out this Christian nationalism thing. Mm -hmm. Now, again, it's not like I hadn't seen it before, but honestly, it was always put in such a way that to me, I'm like, well, I don't know. That doesn't sound that bad. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like, I mean, we would be giving freedom to others. I mean, I don't want to take anyone's freedom, all this stuff. 
Yeah. Right. But then January 6th comes along. Uh, Trump starts saying that if I don't win this presidency, there's only one reason. It's mm-hmm. because it was stolen. Right. And he starts to bring this and everyone believes it, whether they it happened or not. Right. I mean, I personally haven't seen the data to show me that it that it did. But um, uh, like Will and I always talk about, we're open to the evidence. Show us, tell us, bring it to us, show us where it is. My question, not to get on that harp on that too much, though, how did we get here in a sense? Where did this start? Because it didn't start with Trump. Right. It became very visible with Trump, it seems like. So so what happened? How do we get here? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of really big kind of cultural shifts and changes um, that brought this to the fore. So um, there's aspects of the fact that the U.S. Is, um, has been over the past number of decades diversifying religiously and demographically. And so that has brought to the fore some of those kind of fissures and fraction points. If we're going to be in a pluralistic democratic society, it's pretty easy when everybody kind of looks the same, believes the same, right? Because democracy and voting will kind of return the results that that majority kind of wants. But as the voting population gets more and more diverse and there's different competing thoughts and attitudes, then that group that was kind of used to it all kind of working out for them, all of a sudden they're just another voice in the room or a seat at the table. And so I think that motivates in some way trying to even go to the part, like to the point of setting aside democracy as those that attack the Capitol were willing to do, right? They felt like, no, democracy didn't return the results we wanted. We need to forcibly take this back. But those, those ideas were in play you know, within the Christian right before I was born, right? So in 1980, Paul Weyrich went to a large meeting of pastors in Texas and Ronald Reagan was there. And he literally said, you know, we have what Christians call a good government syndrome, this idea that if more people vote, that's better. And he's like, no, our ability to win elections goes up as the voting population goes down. Right. He had an understanding that the more people are able to vote, the less likely white conservative Christians and and, uh, political folks like him would be able to win. And so since that time, um, that kind of anti-democratic kind of uh, virus almost has has been in that political movement. And that came to the fore with Trump. And so, again, this idea that, you know, when you're used to privilege, equality feels like discrimination. Um, The fact that you know, we live in a pluralistic democratic society that's actually pretty um, – democracy being available to everybody in this country is actually pretty recent, right? The 1960s with the Voting Rights Act was finally where, you know, literally anybody could vote, and that's not that long ago. And so we're dealing with, I think, some of that kind of cross-pressure and change and fracturing. And so then there's a lot of other stuff, too, with like if we want to talk about the media and where people get their news and the shared, you know, um, reality and facts, you know, as you're talking about um, when Trump's lawyers would go into a court of law, they would all say to a person that we don't have any evidence that the election was stolen, but they would go on, you know, news or whatever else and say that it was. And so that is really difficult to overcome in our society. So this is a long answer and there's a lot happening, but um, I think those are kind of two of the the big parts of of what we see leading to um, what we saw on January 6th. 
Yeah, you know, I'm I'm wondering if um like I'm sure you could probably expand on the you know, the history of how we got to where we are today. Like you already cited Paul Weirich, you know, you mm-hmm. probably use Bob Jones or Falwell or, you know, name your your famous evangelist kind of thing and and, right. uh, and and it's 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 almost like it's almost like you know reading the bible today like we read the bible today and we're like man those apostles were so stupid you know like didn't they know you know that jesus like you know could heal them and all this other kind of stuff and and like as 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 someone that reads the history books today and we're like man like that like i can't believe they they let bob jones and falwell and blah 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 you know segregate schools and stuff and and um so, so I, I say all that to, to, to ask you this, like, like what, what signs like are there today mm. that, that give you pause or make you worried, you know, about the future? Um, you know, we've got a lot of these data points in the past that we can point to. Okay. Mm-hmm. These things sort of like, um, made it possible for Trump and Christian nationalists today. Um, so, so what are some things you're seeing that, that, you know, future, uh, professor whiteheads will, will mm. be looking at and saying, man, those guys are really stupid. They could, they didn't see all those little signs, you know, right there in the 2023, you know, or whatnot. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I, you know, I think some of it is for us today, um, instead of looking back and being like, why didn't people see it or what was wrong with them? I think we need to take a posture where we realize there were a lot of well-intentioned people living then that weren't listening or the majority missed it. Right. So hopefully that gives us a sense of humility that like you're kind of pointing out, like there are things right now that perhaps we're missing and that people will look back and be like, I can't believe they missed that. Or why weren't they more devoted to, you know, helping or caring or, or whatever these different groups. Um, and so in that sense, I try to, kind of locate myself like I would I would probably be in the silent majority back whenever, right? Go back to whatever year. And so then hopefully that motivates me now. And I think this is the way that I would answer your question. The key is for us, and I say us in terms of, you know, for me recognizing that I'm a Protestant white Christian man, that society generally has been organized where You know, it's not as though I don't work hard um, to get what I, you know, to earn my keep or whatever, but there aren't additional hurdles that have been placed in my way, right? It hasn't been made harder by my skin color, gender or whatever else. And so in that sense, it's incumbent upon me to be listening to those who are on the margins, who are being oppressed, um, who are being crushed and saying, this isn't working for me. I need to be trying to listen to those voices because they're going to see clearly what they're up against. And those systems generally don't come for me, right? Like even when, you know, Trump was in office, the one thing that all, you know, affected my life directly was when they were thinking about um, cutting Medicaid, right? And that like vote, do you remember that when John McCain like voted like the last second and it (laughs) failed or whatever? Because I have two boys with disabilities who are on Medicaid. So Mm. that's when it became very real. But if I had able-bodied kids, there was really nothing that Trump did that came for my pocketbook or would have affected me very directly, right? Just to be honest. You know, there were things that I held dear, believed in that, you know, I felt like, you know, he was hurting. But for the most part, 
you know, for folks like me that had some privilege, it wasn't going to affect us. And so I have to be, and I try to encourage folks like in the book, the way that we, one of the ways that we counter and confront Christian nationalism is to listen to those marginalized voices because they're going to see very clearly what's happening in the systems that oppress, right? Um, and that's what I think Christians can and should be involved in is looking at where is where are people and, and their access to flourishing being you know, pushed away or pushed down? And how can we move towards them like Jesus would have to help um, leverage what we have so that they can have access to a lot of the benefits of being an American, right? There's a lot that is great, but it hasn't been accessible to everybody. Like that is just a fundamental fact, no matter what we, you know, some groups talk about with history. It, the American dream has not been accessible to everybody. But I think as a Christian, um, you know, how that quote unquote American dream is built, we should do that more equitably. And then who has access to it should be done in a way that everybody does. And there's a lot we can do. And so um, I think that's where my heart is and where a lot of this research is kind of pushing me as a Christian, where. I want to be a part of of that work where um you know benefiting those around me being a citizen that is about the good of you know the good of the city um you know Josh is as some folks preach right like wherever you find yourself be about that um absolutely so, yeah. yeah so that's I think where where I come to it on yeah I'm I'm wondering if if um and I hope this question comes across um Sensical. I, I I don't ask too many like theological questions just because it's not really in my wheelhouse. Um, so if I butcher this, then um, forgive me. But no, but, you'll do great. But I, I want to ask you about um, Barabbas um, in the Bible. Um, so um, based on my recollection, he was this uh, I don't know guy that was on. He was going to be executed. Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, however you want to pronounce his name, you know, gave the people the choice to choose him or choose Jesus. They chose Barabbas. Um, and I, I, I often thought that was like just a perfect allegory for, you know, the unconditional faith, like commitment support for Donald Trump. And I, I love to kind of just get your thoughts on it. And if, and if it's not Barabbas, if that's a really for example, you know, like what are, what, what's another fitting one? Like, like this, this past weekend, Josh gave a sermon about like the Moses snake idol that they lit incense or something to, which I can't remember the name, but at least I was listening, Josh. So, um, <laughs> uh, so, so like, I, 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 I love to, I love to get your, get, get your thoughts on, on that comparison. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the way that I would think about that and, and this idea of, of what Jesus was about, what he came to do, and ultimately what cost him was was questioning, um, you know, whether the people of God and the kingdom of God is centered around power, right? And so as he undercuts religious authorities because he sees that they are further oppressing people rather than setting them free, and he calls that out, I think at that point, then whether it's um, political, religious authorities, they're all going to be coming for whoever's doing that. And I think Jesus then kind of obviously lived that out where for them choosing Barabbas over him, even a person that came to heal and did heal, um, set them free, was even trying to um, undercut these systems of oppression that were over them. Uh, they you know, wanted to reject it out of fear and threat. 
um, turning to violence. Um, and so no matter who is in political or religious power, they're going to be opposed to anybody um, or any group that is focused on turning those systems of power upside down um, and leveraging them to the good of all. And so I think that's where the the overlap and um, yeah, where those stories could could be a, I don't know my you know English uh, metaphors and allegories or whatever it is, right? A, sure. a story that hopefully provokes our imaginations to think through. You know, not only what Jesus did, but the cost, right? Like, I think for me, especially, I know this is true of me, and I'm sure it's true of others, where we, a lot of times as Christians, we don't fully grasp how radical the call is. Mm. And like, <laughs> there's things, it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us, but yeah. we don't want it to. Um, and not just like, you know, this personal spiritual cost or whatever. I don't want to overly spiritualize it, but like... In our lived realities and um, in our bodied, embodied selves and lives, right? Like we should be leveraging what we have in different ways. And, you know, America, like others, other, you know, superpowers before it is empire. And so we have to be really careful with how we live, think, you know, intersect our faith with empire because the story of God's people, um, God didn't locate himself in the seats of power and empire, right? And when that happened, it was really detrimental for a lot of people. So those are the things that have been, you know, milling around in my head for years and years now. And that I try to give, yeah, give space to on the page with this book and just thinking through those and let's have conversations about them like today. So I, I just appreciate it. Yeah. I think that the conversation is extremely important when we think about America, say, as an empire, like you mm. said, right? That's hard for the typical American <laughs> to swallow that pill. It is. And I think the yeah. reason it's hard is because we have seen, we have seen ourselves and been, and been seen and shown in, in all sorts of different ways that America is the best country in the world. Not only the best country in the world, the best country that's ever existed. Right, right. On, on a variety of different metrics. Mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. anyone can come in and, and we can argue those things back and forth. But as I'm thinking about the idolatry in my own personal life, mm. the idolatry that can get connected to a political movement, which it's very easy for me to make that connection. Like, it's yeah. very easy to see how someone could be idolatrous when it comes to a leader. I think yeah. people were idolatrous when it came to Obama. I think people are certainly idolatrous when it comes to Trump. I'm not sure anyone's idolatrous with Biden. I don't think Biden's uh, good enough to make an idol. Um, but I think that as I'm wondering and mm. thinking through the idolatry issue, one thing that comes to my mind is it's still a little bit blurry. And here's what I mean. We have three things you said, fear, violence, and power. Mm -hmm. The power... I can understand the fear that's connected. The violence is the, the drive and the action to maintain power mm -hmm. driven by fear of change, um, mm -hmm. of the world becoming different than it was what we're used to take a little bit of a deeper look and help me see the connections. Like for instance, of the idolatry of power and the idolatry of fear when it comes to 
this Christian nationalism? How does it connect? And then how does it affect the way people vote, Mm -hmm. live their lives, engage politically? Mm -hmm. I guess, why does it matter so much? Why should we care about it so much? Is it really that bad? Mm. Paint the picture, connect it for us to these (laughs) idols that, that, that are bad. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a fair question, a good one. And that's too, what I hope to do, you know, through our work before, but even early on in the book is try to highlight, you know, essentially what social science shows us. Right. So I could go through, you know, really quickly, some of what this desire for a Christian nation is associated with. Right. So these are the things that I started to see and then started to think, well, does this reflect Jesus, you know, and what I've been taught there or not. So Americans who embrace Christian nationalism are more likely to believe that refugees from the Middle East pose a terrorist threat. They're more likely to deny free speech to religious minorities who they deem a threat. Um, They're more likely to believe immigrants threaten American culture, increase crime, and are mostly dangerous criminals. They're more likely to be not at all comfortable with their child marrying somebody who is black. They're more likely to believe police treat black Americans the same as white Americans and that police officers shoot black Americans more often because they're inherently more violent than white Americans. They're more likely to believe that Muslims, Jews, and atheists hold morally inferior values, want to limit freedoms of people like them and endanger their physical safety. Um, and more likely believe that women should just stay in the home and care for children and leave politics and the corporate world to men. So that's just like a quick summary of what we have in our first book. And so as I look at those and I think about not only what it means to be an American, what American civic life should look like, but also to be a Christian, to me, those don't look like Christ or you know, those aren't values that I would want to see lifted up in a in a democratic, a truly democratic society. So the threat to democracy, but then the threat, I think, to Christianity is is there. And so when we're thinking about power, it isn't as though Christians should abdicate any interaction with power. And that's not what I argue. And I actually think to say that, oh, I just opt out. I follow Jesus. I don't, you know, align with any political party. That's only a stance you can take if you're privileged. Like that's only a stance you can take if the political realm isn't coming for you physically, right? So if we think back, like if you're a black American in the 50s, you can't be like, oh, I just opt out of politics because they're coming for you, right? And so as Christians, we should be involved. We need to be involved. I don't see how you can be an American and Christian and not be involved in the civic sphere. But what becomes idolatrous about power is when it's power applied only to the benefit of, quote unquote, us, the in-group. So if we look at the civil rights movement and what came out of that with the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, that is power applied, right? That is coercive power saying you, every American has to abide by this idea and belief and, and reality that anybody can vote. That's power, but it's power applied to the benefit of all. So it isn't just self-interested power. So it isn't as though black Americans and those in the civil rights movement were saying, okay, white Americans have been able to vote for centuries. Now it's our turn. They can't vote. Now we can only vote. It wasn't that. It was saying, hey, everybody can vote now, right? And so it's 
it's a flourishing of all. Everybody has access. And so when we're talking about power, that's what, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm arguing for is that Christians should be involved in the process, but aware of those systems that are limiting access to the democratic process or to common flourishing. And we should work to ensure that everybody has access. Um, so those that are on the margins or have been cut out of American civic life can now be a part of it. And that may mean that now we're one voice among, you know, two dozen rather than one voice among three. Um, but if we're committed to the hope of what America could be, um, and we're committed to loving our neighbor as ourself and to defend their religious freedom and liberty and rights, just like we would want them to defend ours, then I feel like we have to be a part of that. So, you know, those findings that we have, I see those as threats. And then when we're talking about power and fear, I think that's how we should respond and, and the way that we can move towards hopefully begin a journey where we're, yeah, moving towards a, a common flourishing where we all have access. I want to I want to read um, an excerpt from your your book. Um, so I don't really know what page this is on, but <laughs> uh, but no worries. Uh, it says examples abound of white Christians actively participating in lynchings. Sometimes the mobs carried out lynchings after services on Sundays hmm. near or around churches, which ensured a sizable crowd, as in the lynchings of. Harris Tunstall, Samuel Thomas Wilkes, and Luther and Mary Holbert. Um, just as mm -hmm. harmfully, most white Christians failed to actively oppose this evil. Um, and so, so my, my, my question to you is, you know, based off this excerpt, I mean, are, we've spent the majority of this time talking about how Christian nationalists are, you know, threatening the gospel, threatening the, the church. But I mean, is it is it a fair accusation to say, you know, apathetic Christians that aren't, I don't know, speaking up um, are are equally to blame for for a lot of what we're seeing today in our sort of modern, you know, political, religious um, mm. context? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a fair question. So, you know, equally to blame, I guess you could kind of delineate that, right? Because they aren't actively maybe arguing for taking away voting rights. But when you're in the majority and it's not affecting you, but it's going to affect somebody else and and we don't stand up for those those voices on the margins, I think that's where, okay, yeah, maybe it's not equally to blame, but there's blame there, right? Because it... um it's essentially what we've seen in, in yeah, these different moments, whether it's Jim Crow and, and the lynching era or slavery um, or those that, you know, um, you know, in the letter, ham, letter from the Birmingham jail that Dr. King was talking about, the, the moderates that kind of say, let's take our time, let's, you know, not get too hasty, that type of thing where he's saying, you know, to deny justice now is just to be a part of the system that is oppressing people. Um, and so whether it's equal blame, I just think there's blame there. And so to stay silent when folks are being oppressed, I think that's where we can move the needle because Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism, they are a minority, right? There's like 15% of the population, but they're motivated and active and they're pushing an agenda that if a larger portion of the population is kind of sympathetic to Christian nationalism and kind of stays quiet, 
everybody assumes that, well, then we believe this. And so if, if I can kind of help move those folks to saying, well, actually, no, right? Like if I was a religious minority, I wouldn't want in God we trust in the public schools because maybe they don't worship God and they should feel comfortable in a public school too. So maybe in America, we should make room for, for everybody. Um, being able to say that, I think then we start to confront what people might assume to be true or that the small minority that's really vocal says is true and to show that maybe this is a different place and can be a different place. Um, and so, yeah, that's where I think for, and I include myself in this, like for those of us that maybe it doesn't affect directly, we have to do what we can to speak up so that those who it does affect directly can have a voice. Yeah, that that's really well said. Hmm. So if you are coming to a, let's say an article, yeah, you see it. And it's talking about some kind of, you know, rally that's taking place and it's calling it, you know, this is clearly white supremacist. Mm -hmm. And then you have another article that's calling it just Christian nationalism. Then you have a conservative article that's just <laughs> saying, you know, people are just coming together and they're, and, and they're using their constitutional right to speak out of what they believe. Mm. When you're as a sociologist, and what I'm trying to get at here mm -hmm. is more of a methodological question. Okay. Because we all come to our conclusions, right? We all have the things that we think and the things we believe and the things we want others to believe. Yeah. When you're coming to something like that, how are you as a scientist and as a social scientist, how are you evaluating these things? How do you look at these articles? How do you look at these statements? What kind of evidence are you looking for? Because, because the question came when you were talking about being essentially anti-racist, right? That's what a word and a concept we've heard a lot in the last several years mm -hmm. is it's not good enough just to be not racist, but you actually need to step up and be anti-racist. Mm -hmm. You have to, essentially, it's the sin of omission. If you don't speak out against this, hmm. what do we do with people that are saying, hey, the data doesn't bear this out, what you're saying? It hmm. doesn't bear this out. People have as much opportunity. They have blah, 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 whatever it is. How do you as a social scientist evaluate the data and the evidence to come to your own sense of a conclusion that that fits with where the, you think the data is leading? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And so something that we talk about, like in classes I teach is, you know, whenever we're, we're faced with certain data, right? The, the key first aspect is to see um, who collected it, right? Where did this come from? And to research what those groups are, because every group and anybody collecting data, they have at least something in mind, right? That they think is true or not. And so we have to evaluate kind of how they went through their methods. And so as a social scientist, what questions were asked? How were they asked? What were the possible responses? Um, because sometimes you can get, you know, I'll get mailings where depending on who's, you know, in power um, in, in the Oval Office, but the, the opposing group might send, you know, hey, how do you think America's doing? And it's like every response option is essentially like America is just suffering. Like this is the worst ever. 
So totally. like, hey, when did you stop beating your wife? That like today? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, totally. So we have to look at the questions that were asked, how, what the response options were, or if they're collecting data, when was it collected? How was it collected? Because all of those methodological decisions <clears throat> make a difference, right? And we need to know what those are. So for me, as I look at kind of, you know, where we are in America today, and we look at data just kind of to your example about racial injustice, um, there, there is overwhelming evidence, right, that um, for Black Americans, let's say specifically, their interaction with the criminal justice system is completely different than other racial groups, especially for white folks, right? So they make up 13% of the population, but at least double that you know, if we're looking at those on death row, right? So there's something very different about it that's taking place. And so once we start to look at that data or um, maternal uh, health, right? So black uh, American women are two to three times more likely to die in childbirth than any other or than white Americans. And black babies are more likely to die in the first year than white American babies. So when we start to see that data, that for me is like, okay, there is a reality here of of racial injustice and difference. Now, what's causing that? It isn't just that individuals do or do not hold racist views, but there's something going on with how the system's set up that is, you know, creating these differences. And so if all I do is say, well, personally, I am angry that black people are on death row more or black mothers die in childbirth more, individually that won't change a thing, right? Because the system that's producing is going to keep moving. And literally everybody, all the doctors could say, I'm not racist. But if we leave the system in place, it's going to produce what it was designed to produce. And so that's where I think we have to step out and not only just speak against it, but try to think about, well, how can we change the system? Because we're going to continue to be carried along the way that we've been going if all we do is individually say, well, i you know, I'll speak out against it personally, or I'm just, I don't think that's a good thing. We actually have to do something. And I think that's where um, thinking about, again, it's that whole idea of upstream, right? Like we could pull, we see somebody flailing in the river, we pull them out, which is a good thing. Charity is a good thing. But if we keep seeing people in the river, we have to start thinking, okay, what's happening upstream that is getting all these people in the river? And let's go change that, right? And we should still pull them out as best we can, but let's go change what's sending people in the river. And that's what that's what I mean by, you know, speaking out. It's it's really trying to think again of the systems that are creating inequality. And so we have to we have to do something about that. It can't just be changing individual hearts and minds. Yeah. So this is my my last well, one of two last questions. Um, so I guess it's the, the question before the last one. Um, I guess probably penultimate. Penultimate. <laughs> there question. we go. Yep. Um, I, I'm cu- I'm curious. Like, how do we how do we fix this? I mean, you know, we we spent a lot of uh, the past uh, fifty minutes talking about all the problems. You know, identifying causes and whatnot. Yeah. So, like, how do we how do we I don't know evolve or or work towards correcting these problems. I mean, you know, so Josh is a pastor, you know, mm-hmm. how does, how do pastors help, um, you know, the national conversation about Christian nationalism, you know, how, how do I, as a, you know, podcaster help, you know, yeah. how do you as a sociologist help? Mm-hmm. Um, like w- w- what are some solutions that, that we should be thinking about? 
Yeah. So all of the solutions are in the book. So all people have to do is just go buy it. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> so one, one thing that I, I will be clear on. So in the book, I do try to provide examples, right? Because there are folks who are taking steps in these areas, beautiful steps that I think reflect the beauty of the gospel um, and the kingdom of God. And so I want to share those, but Honestly, I want to share those to spark the imagination of readers because I know that it's going to take creativity and it's going to take all of us to be able to respond to something like this. And so I look forward to hearing about what, you know, different congregations do because I have a, you know, a story in the book of a congregation that, you know, saw that their denomination didn't follow through on a promise to rectify or at least support um, rectifying racial injustice. So they just collected money, created a community, um, you know, a panel of community folks who were black and just gave them the money and said, go and do with this what you will. Right. And so they were, were interested in just supporting, you know, that community. Um, and so there's things like that, that I think will and, and must happen if we're going to change the trajectory. Um, because there are expressions and in, in many different ones that are moving to confront and oppose Christian nationalism. And so, um, you know, those are the things that I try to just stories that I share. But again, I think it will take, you know, people talking about it, it will take courage. Um, you know, I don't envy clergy that have to you know, navigate a lot of cross pressures and I get that. Um, but then having those conversations and, and being committed to being on the journey with people, that'll be key. And then what we just talked about too, I think listening to the voices of the marginalized and thinking how we can work upstream of, of these social problems, um, to leverage what we have to fix some of those systems, um, and really listening to those folks for, for how to do so. I think that has to be a key part of it, um, as well. That's really great. Um, well, um, so now my final last question. So how how uh, how can people get a hold of your book? Um, stay up to date on all the cool stuff that you're working on. Yeah, well, I'm across you know the different social media outlets, whatever they're called uh, at this particular time that you're listening to it. Um, but I'm there, um, and hopefully, folks can find me. Um, and then the book is available wherever you buy books. So obviously, um, Amazon, but bookshop, um, where you can support or bookshop. So you can support local bookstores, Baker Bookhouse. Um, if they go there and search it, that's usually the cheapest and free shipping. Now it's like still 30% off. So I just want people to get it for as cheap as possible. So Baker Bookhouse is a great place to go to for that book. Um, but yeah, they can find me across those, those places. That's really awesome. Uh, yeah, actually, I had a question here about social media because you mentioned Twitter in your book, and uh, yes. and I was like, <laughs> should I ask him if he should change the name? Like, and I don't know if the version I had like <laughs> had been updated, but yes, I, like, I don't even know if they're calling it now. But the website is yeah. still Twitter, so I think I think we're good to call it. Isn't Twitter that funny? So, yeah. It is, yeah, it's wild. So I am on there. It's at and then. N D R E W W H I T E H E A D. Yeah, but, in, yeah. Andrew White. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but initially, I was trying to find you. I'm like, hey, like, what? That's so weird. Like, his yeah. name Andrew. But I, yeah, there's probably another Andrew Whitehead out there. So, there is. There you go. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, spending some time with us, talking to us yeah. about all the things Christian nationalism in your book. And um, yes, thank you so that much. Are, that are looking for a great book to read. Can't recommend American Idolatry enough. It's um, it's a really really fascinating book. Very easy to read. Um, mm. We didn't get too much into your other book um, about you know t- uh, uh, 
with the, the one that you wrote with, with, with Sam Perry, a lot of right. numbers, a lot of statistics. Um, this one, not as much. <laughs> so it's, right. it's a really, really good one. Speaking of which, I, I, I actually listened to your uh, book with Sam Perry on a trip to Indiana. And oh, okay. uh, I was the entire time I'm thinking, man, I really wish I had the hard copy because like none of yeah. the, none of what they're saying makes sense from an audio standpoint. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough book on audio. 